Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Paper Cuts, now out mid-morning every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Paper Cuts, we read the papers so you don't have to. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. As you might know, every Saturday we put out Bunker USA, where we look at a big story from the United States, but America produces more political news than it or we can consume. And this is one of the biggest stories of recent weeks. In Congress, a compromise budget deal to avoid shutting down the US government got through in part because it removed a planned $6 billion of continued funding for Ukraine's war effort, which is a source of continuing anger for hard right Congress members. This was despite a visit from President Zelensky to plead for continued funding. Joe Biden has said he'll put forward an additional funding bill specifically for Ukraine, but the temporary cancellation further raises the prospect that a future Republican administration might abandon Ukraine entirely. Donald Trump has said he would end the war in 24 hours, and it's highly unlikely that such a peace would favour Ukraine. So where are we on this? What does it all mean? And will American support for Ukraine survive? To explain it all, we're delighted to have the return of Bunker regular Dr. Julie Norman, Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations at UCL. Hello, Julie. How are you? Yeah, hello. Good to be back. It's fantastic to have you back on the podcast. So firstly, explain, how do we end up with a budget deal that excludes that $6 billion of aid in Ukraine? Is it just a matter of punishing Biden and manoeuvring? Or is it something that's core to what the Republicans actually want? Yeah, so to, to get into the weeds a little bit here, the budget deal came about really to prevent a government shutdown. Going into October, the U.S. Congress always has to pass the budget for the next year. A certain group of Republicans were essentially not allowing that to pass. And so the ex-speaker, Kevin McCarthy, essentially worked out a deal, so to speak, with Democrats where they would keep the government open, they would pass a short-term budget deal um, that would last until mid-November, but it did not include some key things that either Republicans or Democrats wanted. One thing that the White House and both Republicans and uh, Democrats wanted from the Senate was aid for Ukraine. That piece was not included, and that was to keep many in the House on, on board with McCarthy. To get to your original question, I would say there's many reasons for some Republican intransigence on Ukraine. The party is quite split on this fact, even on Capitol Hill and among voters. About 60% of Republican voters right now think the U.S. Um, should be doing less for Ukraine. So that's how this came to be a sticking point on there. And there's different motivations for that. What does it mean in practical terms for Ukraine? It's a, I think it's like a 45-day delay before the thing could be revisited. America has already sent $46 billion in aid so far, including long-range missiles and Abrams tanks. How serious is this for them? Yeah, so it's um, obviously it was a deal that Zelensky hoped would go through, especially after he had just been in the United States a week ago meeting with many of these lawmakers. This was really a chance to secure some of this. But as you noted, the U.S. Um, in, in total dollars terms has given almost $110 billion, And as you noted, about $46 billion of that is military aid specifically. So what Biden is trying to do right now is ensure that that aid keeps going. What is happening right now, actually, 
actually, is that some of the aid that was promised over the past year is just starting to get to Ukraine, things like the tanks and these um, kinds of weapons that had been promised before. So in the short term, it won't make or break things in the next couple of weeks for Ukraine. But what matters is ensuring that aid continues to flow in this next year and from Biden's perspective for long term security for Ukraine as well. You alluded to the fact that it's not actually the, the the full block of Republicans. It is the Freedom Caucus, the the, the hard right group of senators. Can you tell us more about these people who are, are behind that blockage? I mean, we're seeing names like Matt Getz and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said that uh, Kiev has already had too much aid and Ukraine is not the 51st state. Who, who are these people? What are they all about? I would again say there's many Republicans who are not only supporting aid to Ukraine, but also think the Biden administration should be doing even more. And we hear some of those voices in the Senate. In the House of Representatives, though, we have a number of sort of disruptor individuals, and they've taken on this role since the start of this last term. Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, as you mentioned, who are really riding with more um, the MAGA part of the party, the more populist part of the party. And they are kind of digging into a couple different angles on this. The first that I think they are trying to sell to voters is that U.S. tax dollars should be kept in the U.S. for U.S. interests. And from their perspective, there aren't uh, U.S. interests involved in Ukraine, which I think many on Capitol Hill and in the electorate would disagree with, but that's their argument. Others, I think, are taking this stand simply because it is the consensus view and the sort of uh, institutional foreign policy view right now is to supporting Ukraine. So to simply be kind of a, a disruptor in that, to say whatever Biden's supporting, whatever the administration and the institutions are supporting, we're going to go against that. There's yet another angle within that that says we think Ukraine is a distraction from China and the Pacific where they see real threats. And so there's a couple of different justifications, but I would say this main group that is pushing for this and really uh, and really coming down hard are doing a lot of things that are very different from the rest of the party to get their own names out there to really double down with this more MAGA populist right wing base that has propelled them to power and that I think they see a unique vantage point for themselves and continuing to lean into that particular part of the party. The kind of calling card of the of the MAGA grouping and the Freedom Caucus is that they kind of represent real America, that they, they are the, the voice of real Americans in the disconnected bubble that is Washington. That's the claim, at least. CNN's reporting that there's a sense among voters that American interests and Ukraine's interests are opposite and that at Republican campaign events, voters are often open in their antipathy towards sending money to Ukraine. We would have expected the Republican Party to show in the old days to show leadership on this, to to kind of explain to the American people why what seems like their immediate interest is not necessarily the nation's long term interest. I mean, this may be a silly question, but what happened to that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I would say there's almost a, um, I wouldn't go so far to say a civil war within the Republican Party, but definitely a very deep rift and very different perspectives on what foreign policy should look like. And that's really a shift from especially the neocons, the neoconservatives from, say, the Iraq-Afghanistan period, and even before that, the Cold War period, with what are more kind of newer Republicans that have a much more isolationist kind of bend. You know, I would point out, I think some of this is somewhat expected just in the way that waves of history tend to go in the U.S. with real support for U.S. being a very forefront leader on the world stage versus taking more isolationist role. That's not uncommon. And I think especially after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which many Americans just felt went on way too long, there's a certain narrative that can be tapped into that with suggesting that Ukraine is going to become another 
long-term commitment, even though there are not and is has not been you know any indication there would ever be U.S. boots on the ground there. So it's, it's very different. But that is what many Republican voters, I think, are hearing from some parts of the party, and that is resonating. And again, it's tapping into you know, many people's own current concerns around the economy, around inflation. And so if you have a politician telling you, hey, all the money that should be coming to you is going to another country, we don't see an interest, that does get purchased, even if there are many others who disagree with that kind of interpretation. Donald Trump has been rather tied up this week, rather busy. Where is he on this issue? I mean, he's claimed, as I said, that he could end the Ukraine war in 24 hours. He's even demanded that no aid go through to Ukraine unless it's specifically tied to further investigations into Biden. Yeah, this was kind of Trump's attack over the summer was saying that the House shouldn't commit to more aid to Ukraine unless there's an impeachment inquiry into Biden and whatnot. And and the House did do that. And McCarthy himself did support that opening of investigation. So in some ways, they have uh, kind of given Trump what he kind of suggested on that. Trump's own stance on this issue, I think, is interesting. Like he obviously speaks a lot about how he would solve this very quickly. He seems to be, I think, leaning into, again, this more populist side that doesn't want a lot of aid going to Ukraine. But one thing with Trump is that he is not usually consistent on policy and foreign policy in particular. He tends to read the moment and he likes to be seen as a hero or a savior. So my sense on this, if he were um, actually you know, elected in 2024, it's hard to read what he would do. But my sense is he would try and spin himself as the deal maker, uh, that kind of uh, position. And in the meantime, is probably going to also be leaning into this idea of we can't give aid to Ukraine forever and that this needs to be, um, you know, I think this was something that comes up in the campaign quite Quite a bit in 2024. Shutting down the government seems to be almost a rite of passage every time Republicans lead Congress. I mean, you kind of, you've got your checklist, you start investigations into the Democratic president of the day, you try to impeach, you shut down the government. I mean, it used to be the ultimate weapon. Is it now just routine? Yeah, it almost seems that way. I mean, the, the last big one we saw was under Trump, and that was in regards to the border wall. I will say this one was different in some ways in that usually it's a sort of showdown between the parties, between Democrats and Republicans. And this almost shutdown that we had was really within the Republican Party at the end of the day. You, It was this real tension, again, between this Freedom Caucus wing, this more MAGA-aligned wing, and much of the party that's a bit more pragmatic, a bit more open to, uh, to some kinds of compromises, essentially. So so this is really where we saw that split. And I think we're not out of the woods yet. The deal that did pass was for six weeks. And I think this is going to come up again. So there's a lot of tumult in the House right now around this. And I think that wing of the party was essentially hoping for a shutdown. I think they thought it would be good for them, even though it's obviously not good for the country. I mean, as part of this whole mess, Matt Getz and the hard right senators actually managed to topple Kevin McCarthy as the House Speaker on Wednesday night. It all happened incredibly quickly. I think we were both surprised, weren't we, that this happened? Absolutely. It is the first time a Speaker has ever been voted out. What does all this mean in the broader sense for the House? Yeah, so it means a couple things. One, just for the Republican Party, it really shows the strength that this really quite minority flank has, obviously led by Matt Gates and joined by seven others. I mean, a very small number who were able to upend the party's leadership completely, obviously with Democratic votes as well. So it really, I think, underscores the dysfunction within the party. And there's really not a clear path forward for them. 
For Congress also, I think this just really puts the House in a period of disarray and turmoil. You know, we were talking earlier in the week about if there would be a bill for Ukraine funding, what the next negotiations be like for a budget bill for November. All those things are going to be put on hold while the focus is on simply getting a new leadership in place. And that wasn't easy the first time around, and it probably won't be easy again. So for the short and the midterm, it's going to be a bit of a mess. One of the claims that Getz and his co-conspirators made was that McCarthy had made a secret side deal with Biden over Ukraine. Isn't doing deals what the speaker is supposed to do? Isn't it like the job description? One would think, and honestly, I think if one's not expecting that, they haven't uh, been realistic about Capitol Hill. But I think, you know, Gates is using this just to have an excuse to do what he's been looking to do since McCarthy took the speaker role back in the beginning of the year. This has been a sort of personal feud between the two of them. I think he's been looking for an opportunity. And, you know, they're talking about the Ukraine funding, but I think it was really the fact that McCarthy not once but twice compromised with Democrats in moments of crisis to keep the government afloat or to avoid a financial ruin and whatnot. And, you know, for Gates and someone who's a disruptor, that's just unforgivable. And he was looking for this opportunity. The main takeaway on this seems to be that the Republicans are essentially ungovernable and nobody, including the people who toppled McCarthy, knows who's going to replace McCarthy. Is this the future direction of the Republicans, just more nihilism and destruction? Well, it is certainly a question of who's going to succeed him. And I think, again, they will probably have a hard time getting a majority to confirm someone. And it's unclear what kind of constraints that person will have, just as McCarthy did. There's obviously names being floated. Um, The majority leader, Steve Scalise, I think is probably one that many will have eyes on, but there's other names as well. But you're right that whoever is in that position is probably going to face this disruptor wing regardless. And going into an election year of 2024, when things are already tense and difficult, it's not looking good for the party or for Congress more holistically. Is there any sense that this like could finally develop into a bit of a decisive moment for the Matt Getz, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, Lauren Boebert wing? Because all we hear over here are these are increasingly exasperated sort of quasi-mainstream Republican senators saying, we can't allow the party to be dragged around by these exhibitionists and attention seekers any longer. Their embarrassments, you know, people like Getz are pure grandstanders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have definitely heard much more pointed uh, comments and rhetoric this week from many of, as you said, the more mainstream uh, members of the House, especially those from swing districts who don't want the party seen as extremist, as unwilling to compromise. They need to show that they're a more pragmatic party because their seats are at risk. But unfortunately, or depending where one stands, um, unfortunately, the the block that we're talking about is from usually very safe seats. Lauren Baybert is the only one who had any kind of close election in in the last election round. And the rest can pretty much bank on the fact that they will have Republican support. And they don't even really need to rely on the party in the way that you would have in the past. I mean, that's one of the double-edged swords, I would think, of increasing democracy under populism is that many of these individuals can just ride social media, can ride their own brand to getting funding, to getting votes. And even if the mainstream party tries to distance themselves, it doesn't stop them from being elected. Just on a side point, has Lauren Boebert managed to escape the consequences of her antics in that theatre when she went to see Beetlejuice with her her new uh, companion and somewhat, um, shall we say, somewhat let down the dignity of the uh, political classes? Yes, you could say that. I feel like I, I definitely have not forgotten that. I don't think, I, don't think I, can, I can think of Beetlejuice seriously again. So for, for people who didn't follow this, um, Lauren Baber was uh, thrown out of a theatre for um, vaping and then also for like passionate 
wildly groping with her partner during a performance of Beetlejuice, of all things, which is not usually the turn on show that one would think of. Yeah, but, it's um, not the hottest thing in musical theater, I wouldn't not, have thought. It is not, but some, something was moving them. So uh, maybe we're missing out on something. What can I say? She also gave it the full Do You Know Who I Am on the way out, which is always <laughs> ultimate classiness. Um <laughs> getting away from her. As we mentioned earlier, the kind of mood music on the Republican right, not just amongst members of the House and, and, and Senate, but amongst the wider world of pundits and influence, it is increasingly anti-Ukraine, or at least anti-anti-Putin. We saw the ugly spectacle this week of Elon Musk sort of sending out this meme mocking Zelensky, the kind of frustrated boy meme and the caption, when it's been five minutes and you haven't asked for a billion dollars in aid. Do you get the sense that in that kind of wider Republican sphere, of which Congress and that is only a part, that kind of like the decision has been made, that the, the, the world of Fox and the and the world of online influencers is pushing the Republicans inexorably towards abandoning Ukraine. Yeah, I would say that's definitely the direction things are going. And we can see that in the polls. Again, about 60% of Republicans now um, feel that too much aid is going to Ukraine. That should be scaled back. That's up from about 40% just in the spring. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, the voices saying this have certainly increased over time. I think much of the rhetoric actually started with Tucker Carlson back when he had his Fox show. He was one that was really pushing this narrative that aid to Ukraine was out of the U.S. interests and whatnot. And others have simply taken up that call, even even though he's not on Fox every night. And again, I would say that there are different motivations for that and different rationales that are being tapped into, but that does seem to be the direction the party is going. And anytime we're going into the election year, anything that can be used as a wedge issue usually will be. And um, I think we'll see this increasingly, though, again, even among the current Republican candidates, this is still quite a divisive issue. I would just note on this, you know, I think... There are other voices within U.S. politics right now that I think want to continue supporting Ukraine and, and see the the rationale, like the, the morals and the interests involved in that. But there are, I think, real questions that many in the foreign policy sphere are, are asking about if this is going to be a very long protracted war, you know, to what extent can aid levels stay at the levels that they have been? And are there some real pragmatic conversations we can have in between this more right-wing, you know, no aid to Ukraine level and the level that we've been in? So I do think that's something to uh, to just point out as well. Julie Norman, thanks so much for joining us and making sense of it. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We'll see you again soon, I hope. Listeners, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please do consider supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform for independent creatives. We are 100% independent. We've got no big media backer. So your support, whatever it may be, makes a huge difference to us. You'll get every podcast a day early and our new look Patreon backers merchandise. Very nice. Take a look on our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Bunker USA is back at the weekend and there's another fresh bunker tomorrow as well. We'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison and was produced by Liam Tate and me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.